I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we are all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes but from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. All right, folks, grab your Bibles. Turn to Philippians. It's going to be in your New Testament. Um, if you don't have a Bible, then there are some down the center column of, of seats, underneath the seat. Grab it. Tell somebody to throw it to you. Well, probably not throw it, but give it to you. We're going to be in chapter 2, looking at verses 12 through 18 today. I had high intentions. I mean, I, we we're going to get through chapter, all of chapter 2 today, but it ain't going to happen. Like, it's almost, it's 1040. I haven't even said a word yet. All right, so I'm lowering my expectations. You know, sometimes we need to do that. Just lower your expectation. It's not that you shouldn't have high expectations, but today you need to lower it. Go ahead. Just lower it. Lower it. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Read this with me. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gathering of your church and for just a beautiful day that you've given us. It's raining outside, but God, I pray that you give us joy in the midst of the rain, a joy that comes deep from in us and that, um, that exudes from us. Uh, God, I pray that we would hear uh, you through these words of Scripture, that you would, Holy Spirit, speak directly to our individual hearts, and, uh, and collectively, Lord God, we would grow both in you and in your gospel. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're continuing uh, in our series in Philippians, and we have entitled it Reasons for Joy. And that makes a lot of sense. Firstly, uh, 16 times or more, Paul uses the word joy, rejoice, or derivatives of that to convey not just a happiness or feeling or emotion of being in joy. He's talking about uh, an activity. More, more specifically, he's talking about a disposition of life. You know, Paul is in jail. He's in jail in Rome as he's writing that. But all those times he's talking about joy, really a theological motif of joy, um, joy in any circumstance, joy regardless of what's going on 
in my life. And that rings throughout the whole book. Paul writes about a cruciform joy. Cruciform is a made up word, but it's the joy that the, the Bible expresses that people like Paul, Jesus himself gets um, derived from the crucifixion of, of Christ. Uh, uh, a joy that comes from life that's key to my life because I've tapped into not just the, the depth of Jesus, but the life of Jesus as well. And here is, is, is Paul's point here. He says, joy is how believers who know Jesus and who know who, what their future is and that what, what Jesus has guaranteed for us respond. It's how we respond in the context of any present difficulty that you might be living in life. Life, I mean, life sucks. I mean, it's hard here. I'm pressed there. And Paul says, if your joy is in the right place, you can have joy. It's not because we like to suffer, but because we know that our joy is in the Lord. So here's the thing. Joy is not just a disposition. It's, it's not a feeling or an emotion. Joy is locked up in a person, the person of Jesus. Joy is, as, par, as Paul would explain it, the distinctive mark of a believer in Christ. Now, the, the larger context here, if we would connect what I'm going to talk about here today, and even the related title, is, is Paul has a concern for the Philippian church and their witness in their city. And that should be important for us as well. As Christians, we're living our lives as a city in a city in the midst of people who both know and don't know the Lord. And Paul is encouraging the Philippians, like he did in verse 27 of chapter 1, to live lives worthy of the gospel. And the way that I like to phrase that is, is your, your, the witness of your life has to line up with the gospel that you profess. And if those two are out of line, you're a hypocrite. Okay, And people are going to look at you thinking that you represent the church. And it's like, well, I mean, what good is the, their, their religion if it's not, if, if it looks just like my life looks? Here's what Paul's also concerned about. He's concerned about their unity. He talked a lot about that at the latter end of chapter one and also going into chapter two. In chapter two, verse three, Paul says these words. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Then he goes on to give the example of, of Jesus, God who came down, incarnated himself in flesh, lived a life of humility on the earth, creator becoming part of his creation to the point of dying an obedient death on the cross. And so as we continue in chapter two today, Paul is uh, continuing and centering on the topic of obedience. So look down at verse 12. As you read verse 12, we know Paul is uh, he is connecting what he has already said to what he's about to say. And we know that because he uses the word therefore. You learn in, in English. All right? When you see the word therefore, pause and look around so that you can see why it's there for. Okay? And the reason why it's there is Paul is pointing back to what he's just written, namely the, the theme of, of Jesus and his humility and Jesus' example. And Paul is basically saying this to us. Don't be at odds with each other. Don't puff yourself up. Don't be prideful. Be like Jesus, who, oh, by the way, was humble, who, oh, by the way, was obedient, obedient to the point of death. I don't know about you, but when I see the word obey, I know, you know, I just uh, I, I start to lock up at attention. Right. I'm an old army guy. Um, the, the, the word obey reminds us of the authority figures that are in our lives. Uh, think of if you're a kid, your authority figures, your parent, 
just did baby dedications this morning. If you are uh, a student, your authority figure is your teacher. If you got a job, most of us have jobs. The authority figures are our bosses, our supervisors in whatever uh, room they might do that. If you are an athlete, your authority figure might be your coach. We, as, as spiritual people, we might have a mentor that we consider an authority figure. I remember, uh, you know, a lot of y'all in the military, I remember, uh, I mean, Think about the, the military. You come into a room as a senior officer and people actually stand up as a sign of duty, but also respect for, for your rank or for your title. Uh, but have you ever noticed this? When the boss is away, sometimes Johnny doesn't do all the things he's supposed to do, right? I mean, y'all ever heard that? When the cat's away, the mice will play. At least that's the way I, I've experienced it. Not that I've ever done that, right? I mean, I wouldn't do that. Um, Think of your worst job. I haven't had a lot of jobs. I had a job in high school. I worked at McDonald's. And then after West Point, uh, I had an administrative job that my mom got me in the three months before being uh, being an Army officer. Then I was 20 years in the Army. And then I'm a pastor. So I've only had like four jobs. And I would say I've never had a worse job. I actually liked what I was doing in all of those different avenues. Um, But I can remember some people around me who did not appreciate what they were doing. And and I would say when the boss was away, they were playing, like goofing off, doing nothing. I worked for three years at McDonald's when I was in high school. And uh, one of the managers that I worked with a lot, his name was Terry. And Terry was not a, I liked Terry a lot. Terry was not a good manager. Because Terry would come to work, and I was just a dutiful person. I, I liked working at McDonald's, all right? Oh, by the way, they gave me free food, too, when I was in high school. Um, so because I was a dutiful worker, uh, Terry had this uh, habit of putting me in charge. And so I would, like, be running the whole shift throughout my, my, you know, my four- or five-hour shift there. And guess what Terry was doing? He was on the phone talking to his girlfriend. And so... Um, me, the, 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 I wasn't the boss, but I was put in charge of people who did not want to be like under an authority figure. And so Terry would come out every once in a while to see if everything was going all right. And then they would ship up. They would like do what they were supposed to do. But when Terry went away, I mean, what did they do? The mice would start playing again. Um, Terry was not a good boss. Um, here's what Paul is stating about the Philippians. He's, he's, this is a good news story. They weren't doing that. Paul says that they were being obedient not only when their authority figure, he's talking about himself, when their authority figure was present. He says, even when the authority figure is not present, you are doing what you're supposed to do in terms of your Christian obligation. And I think what Paul is getting at, he knows it's not easy for Christians. Uh, it's, it's easy for us to get off track. And really underneath his words, he's, he's presenting to us two kinds of obedience. First, there's an obedience that comes from obligation. I'm obedient because it's my duty to be obedient. But then there's an obedience that comes out of joy, that I, it's not I have to, it's a get to. I'm going to do the things that I'm required to do, not because I think I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to do them because I get some joy. I get some delight out of it. And it can be the same way with our relationship with God. You can obey God out of duty or you can obey God out of delight. And Paul is trying to get us to, you know, underneath our motive to help us develop 
an obligation to God that's a get to, not have to. It's a duty, not uh, it's a delight, not a duty. John Piper helps us out with this. He tells he gives an illustration in one of his sermons um, where he says, suppose I went out and bought a dozen roses for my wife. I came home and I knock on the door and I surprise her with them. She's going to open the door. She's going to actually be surprised. She's going to take those roses, smile at them, love them. She might even hug, kiss him and thank him for them. And then he mouths off with these words. Well, you're welcome. It was my duty to please you. So, ladies, how would you feel about that? Some of you were saying, well, I mean, he brought me some roses. I like roses. Give me the roses. But most of you here um, would take the roses but you would probably be a little bit dismissed or put out that there was no affection that matched up with the presentation of the roses. And so John Piper says, um, do we, uh, isn't the exercise of duty a noble thing? Isn't it right that sometimes we're supposed to do duty, even in marriage? I mean, that's why we have the verses in the Bible that says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect, submit to your husband. Those are in there. Uh, kind of like duty, obligation kind of verses to keep us steered along the right way. Is it wrong for the Bible to tell us that kind of stuff? Is it wrong to, to have duty in our life, to, to have some rules about how we're supposed to do things? Absolutely not. Don't we honor those we dutifully serve? And then Piper writes, not if there's no heart in it. Dutiful roses are co- a contradiction in terms. If I'm not moved by affection for my wife, they don't honor her. In fact, they belittle her. They don't spring from the joy of affection. And I bring up Piper's great example um, to mirror what Paul is saying in regards to our, our affection for the Lord. Paul is trying to get into our motivations and our desires. He's trying to get the Philippian church to recognize, but obviously, obviously, Uh, us as an extension of that. He's trying to get us from a surface level of obedience to a heart level of obedience, that we do it not because we have to, we do it because we get to, that we would begin to obey not out of obligation and duty, but out of joy and delight. And honestly, we have to grow in that. God has to grow that in us, that we would learn to repent of one of the worst sins that I think in the church, and that's joylessness. Don't you hate it when you see a Christian? I mean, you, they go to church, they're faithful, and they're just like the, the I mean, just the, I was going to, I can't say that word. They're just, they're sour. I mean, like, they just got the bad, the worst, at, they're just sour people. It's like, wow, look at your attitude. Are you sure you're a Christian? Because you're like embarrassing all of us. Go back. You need to go back and like get resaved again. You, you can't do that. That's not theologically correct. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I can't tell you the, the number of people that have ideas about what this, this verse means. So you don't need to know about them. All you need to know is what your pastor's telling you. So I'm going to give you my, my rendition this morning. So work out. Paul says, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. The, the word, we, my whole sermon is going to be like unpacking basically verse 12 and 13 because there's so much here. And I think if you get this, it, it may help you on the road to not just being dutiful toward God, but actually delighting in the things that God would have you do. That's my hope here this morning. And then in the last two minutes, 
We're going to tease out verse 14 and 18. So Paul says work out. This is a present tense verb in the in the Greek. It means to keep on working at something until it's finally completed. Paul says work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to skip over salvation, come back to it and deal with fear and trembling. A lot of times when we hear that word fear, we think we're supposed to be afraid of God. The, there is a, yeah, obviously the, the New Testament commends that we would fear the Lord. Remember Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We're, to, we're supposed to fear God. But that word doesn't mean that God's a terrible God lording over us, not outside of covenant, outside of his love for us. It really means that we're supposed to be in awe of God. Think of the word awesome. We're supposed to revere the Lord. Paul says, why work out your fear? Why work out your salvation in fear and trembling? He tells us in verse 13, God is working in you. God is working in you. That's what he says. Don't see this as God in the generic. We sang holy, 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 reminding us of our God as a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That means in everything that God does from creation to um, holding the world up by his power, even right now, giving us oxygen to breathe. He does that trinitarily. One God, three persons. God ordains everything that's happened, that happens. Jesus secures our, our salvation. When he hung on the cross, said it is finished. He has, um, he has made it possible, past, present, future, for all those ways that you need to be saved. You have been saved. You are being saved right now. You will ultimately be saved. Think about Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 6. God is going to complete that which he has begun in you. That's, that's what that verse is talking about. And then you get the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us and is the one that draws us to, to God and makes the realities that God is trying to put in us come to, come to life. And so God is a Trinitarian God. Here, Paul is not disconnecting his thoughts to what he's already said. So he's talking about Jesus. And what has he said about Jesus? Nick unpacked it very well last week. He talked about the incarnation and the exaltation of Jesus. And so Paul is saying, in light of the grandeur of, of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, the, the one, the, the God who condescended from eternity, became a man, humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross, whom God the Father raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit and gave a name that's above everyone and everything. Be in awe of him. The creator sustained their name above every name in light of who Jesus is and the work that he's done for you. Work out your salvation. Here's what Paul is doing. He is warning us of something that was common then and is even more common now. And it's having this casual view of God. Paul's saying, come on, folks, God is at work in you. He's pulling us up from you know, whatever you think, whatever low thing you think of of Jesus, who is God. He's saying Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not some prophet. He's not a, a cosmic sky fairy who throws down fairy dust that ends up as gold dust that you keep in your Bible. He's the creator and sustainer of all life. That God is who we're talking about. And Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because that's the God you're dealing with. Now, here's what here's, this is what happens um, with this casualness is as it begins to sit in. 
Because we talk about Jesus all the time. At least many of us talk about Jesus all the time. Sometimes we just say God. But I mean, for you as a Christian, who is God to you? It's, it's Jesus. And so you should use his name. But sometimes Jesus becomes so familiar that he becomes casual. And when we allow the God who is Jesus to become casual, then we've taken the incarnation and we receive this eternal God who's come and become a man, the God man. But we have neglected that part that Nick talked about last week that exalts him above the name. That's every name. We think of Jesus as a hippie buddy Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is my I got a T-shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. And it's not a sin for you to wear that T-shirt. Don't wear that T-shirt. <laughs> Because Madonna wore that T-shirt and made it popular. Jesus is your God. And so you don't need to have a T-shirt on your, on your, on your you know, wearing a T-shirt that says Jesus is your homeboy. We say that Jesus is with us. He's cool. But here's what we forget. This Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he's waiting to judge the earth. And Paul says, don't think that because Jesus came to earth that he's just a man. He's a God man. We're dealing with God and we should tremble and fear before him. And so here's the thing. We also have to realize that God is working in me. What he says in verse 13. Say that. God is working in me. Say it again. God is working in me. I don't know what you think about Jesus, but if you're a Christian, God is working in you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's working in you. Here's here's the tough part for, for many of us. I think I have trouble with this sometimes. Do you know you? I mean, sometimes you're on it. Like your Christian life is like flowing. You're praying, reading your Bible, you're witnessing. I mean, things are happening. But sometimes you're a mess. That doesn't mean you're not a saint, but we're saints that sin, right? Sometimes life is messy. And so I'm immoral, but this is what the Bible says. This is what Paul is saying here. God is at work in you. Sometimes I'm secure. Paul is saying Jesus is at work in you. Sometimes I'm prideful and I stink, not smell stink. I just like my, you know, what's emanating from me stinks. Paul says Jesus is at work in me. And that's your encouragement from these verses here. When you get that, you suddenly realize God is taking a primary interest in your salvation. He's just not leaving you out there hanging by yourself. You're not just on your own. It's not some self-help guru helping you. It's not just a good idea from a book. God himself has become active in your life. And so Paul says, work out your salvation. Now here's the part about salvation. Salvation means deliverance. This is not a charismatic word. The, the, the charismatic, I'm charismatic. The charismatics, however, have... They've taken that word and turned it into more than it needs to be. All of you that that profess faith in Jesus have been delivered. The Bible says you are delivered, rescued. Think I'm on an ocean. My my boat is sinking and I need somebody to come help me because I can't swim. That's what God does through Jesus on the cross for all of us. He delivers us from hands that are too strong for us. That's what he did for Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, eventually into the promised land. He delivers us from darkness into light. He delivers us from from a a destiny to hell into the kingdom of his son. Here's the thing. Paul's not talking about deliverance as in salvation here. 
He's talking about really uh, an ethic. He's talking about the practical matters of how we live the gospel out in our normal day to day. Like what happens when you leave this room, you go to lunch, you get home and, you know, the things of life start happening. How do you live life in those moments? How do you work out your salvation in those moments? And here's the good news of this text. Paul is talking about the present, the here and now, speaking about everyday parts of your life. And here's his answer. How do you work out your salvation? He says, God is at work in you. It's like, huh? come on, Paul, give me some more. Give me, give me some more words at least. Here's what Paul means. This is a tension. It's a tension for me, a tension for you. Verse 12, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, he says, God is working in me. And the tension is, I mean, so which one is it? Come on, Paul, make it plain. Make it straight, make it plain. Do I do it or does God do it? What do you think? What? <laughs> yes. All right. Both. The answer is both. And some of you is like, God, why does Christianity have to be so hard? I'm just trying to have faith. And yeah, it can be. I mean, Christianity can be frustrating sometimes because it's not always an easy answer. But the answer really is both. God is working in me and I'm supposed to be working out my salvation. But here's how I like to put it. It's 100 percent my surrender. And 100 percent God's power. We are working out what God is working in. And of course, we're still talking about obedience here, people. We're working out our obedience, not out of duty, because God wrote some rules down and said, follow these Ten Commandments and don't stray from them. He is working in underneath the external of our lives that just wants to, like, do it. He's trying to get at our motive. He's trying to get at our desire. The reformer said it like this. We're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. God has declared us righteous, those in Christ. But God is also working in us. This salvation is not about the past. You know, and that's what salvation is. It's justification. God imputes. He gifts you a righteous declaration on your life. And all you have to do is believe. And he does that because of your faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. Here, Paul is talking about an impartation. God is actually working on your nature. You're already a Christian. All right. He's not condemning you to hell. He's saying, all right, I need to work on the inside stuff so that how you look as a Christian is more joyful and more glorious to those who are looking in. And so here's what here's what Paul says. He says, work out your salvation, how God works in you. What's the work? It's letting God do the work in you. Get it? I mean, it's confusing. I know. Let me figure, let me let me tease it out a little bit more. The way to work out your salvation is to let God work in you. And here's how God does the work. Verse 13 continues. God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so here's what this means. In regards to our obedience, we aren't left on our own to make something happen in our own strength. God is working in us for us. God is not just helping us obey. He's literally working in us and motivating us to obey. And I I'll be honest, some of us just, we need help in our obedience. But more than just help in following rules, I mean, because some of y'all are following the rules and you're not happy. Here's where we need the help. We need the help in our wanter. We need the help in our 
um, in our desires. I, I need that. I need the help, not just in reading my Bible, but following the, the letter of the law, not because I have to, because I want, it's in me to, to love the Lord with all my heart, mind, and soul. All, all of us need that. And so, I really, I think the truth is, I mean, we're selfish. All of us, I mean, we're, we're insular. We think me, myself, and I, and sometimes that comes across even in our worship of God. My needs, my wants, my feelings, God, do this the way I want it to, to happen. Many of us don't feel like obeying God, so what do we do? We don't. What do you call someone that doesn't feel like obeying? They're Christian. They don't feel like obeying God, and so they don't. It's a lazy Christian. You're just lazy. And here's the truth. Many of us are like that. Not all the time, but sometimes. We're just lazy Christians. We know what we do. We don't do it because we don't feel like it. But here's, here's we also have some people right here in this room that... Um, even if you don't feel like it, you have the wherewith, so you have some discipline um, about you that you can will yourself to do things even though you don't want to do them. You get in a pattern of obeying God without desiring him. And here's what the Bible calls that, legalism. And I would tell you, it's bad to be a lazy Christian. It's worse to be a, a legalistic Christian. Why? Because that's what the Pharisees were. And Jesus like spoke all kind of woes over them. Laziness and legalism, they come from the same root, and that root is desire. Here's how this works in my own life. Perhaps you can identify. I find that a lot of times I actually don't pray to God or, you know, I don't come to God and ask him to change my desires. I might ask God to change, like, Lord, change me so that I will want to do this, this, and this. I'll want to follow the rule. But a lot of times I don't give God access to my very motivations and my desires. And that's where God, that's where Paul wants us to go. God wants to help us in our desires. And I think that's the point, at least part of the point of these two verses in our text. Jesus wants to help us in our actions and our motives. He wants to help us in our will to obey. And here's why I know that. It's because Paul says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will and to work. God is at work in both. Those words, to will and to work, simply mean that God is working in your actions and, your atti- and, and the, the attitudes that drive your actions. God is working in your actions and the attitude that drives your actions. When, when Paul says, to will, he's specifically talking about your actions. And that word means desire, your wishes, your motives, that which you want to do. You've heard Christians talk about, how do you know something? I just know it in my knower. This is like I know it in my wanter. God is working on our wanter, that thing deep inside of us that, that you can't control, but only God, the Holy Spirit, is able to change our character over time so that we want the things that God wants. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the, in, in the Lord and, ye, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not a prayer that you can praise like, Lord, this is what I want. Give it to me. The, the purpose of that psalm is saying, God is changing my wanter so that I w- my desires match his desires. That's what God wants to give you. That's what the psalmist is talking about. And so God works in my will, we also works in my work. And my work is those, the attitude that drives the action. He wants to 
change both. And he does that, obviously, by the Holy Spirit. How do we change in life? It's the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Sometimes that change is slow. All the time. Well, I'm, I'm just speaking for myself. It, it feels like it's like all, always slow. But sometimes you just wake up in the morning and it's like, oh, Lord, you've matured me in this. But you need to commit that to prayer. Here's, here's what's going on in the history of redemption. In the Old Testament, God put the Spirit on people to do things. In the New Testament, God put the Spirit in us to do his will and his work. Think about Old Testament Samson. Samson would shake, him, shake himself. The Holy Spirit would come on him, and he would have this heroic power to do the things that God would have him do as a judge of Israel, destroying their enemies. In the New Testament, God doesn't do that. He puts the Spirit in us, and he changes us from the inside out. Look at the, the testimony of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 36 and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God and with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Ezekiel 36, 27. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you. Look at that. Cause, cause you. God is doing something on the inside of us to cause us to walk in his statues and be careful to obey my rules. This is Old Testament prophecy foretelling the reality of the New Testament. Jeremiah 32, 40. I'll make with them an everlasting covenant that will not turn that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is the Lord saying in the Old Testament through the prophets that he's going to do something not externally to conform us and make us do. He's going to do it from the inside so that we'll want to. That's what Paul is getting at. And so if you're a Christian, God is working on you from the inside out. Duty to delight, obedience, and joy. Is it true that sometimes duty is necessary? I mean, do we have commands and things in the Bible that we should absolutely do because God has said them? Everybody should shake their head and say, yes, that is true. We should do the things God is telling us to do. But the truth is, sometimes we don't feel like doing what God has told us to do. Sometimes I don't even want to do what's right. Like those of you that speed in your car. Amen. Y'all, y'all speed. I know you. I've been, I've been, I drive behind you. But here's, here's I would, this, these are my words, not Paul's words. This is the place we should visit. We don't want to live here. In terms of our Christian lives, if your Christian life is always duty and no delight, something is wrong. You need to go to God and plead for him. Lord, change, change me, change my heart. Do something. Trying harder, doing better as the as the means by which you live all of your Christian life is not what God would have for you. And I I can't say more on this. I got to move on to these other three verses. But this when Paul in the New Testament talks about grace uh, the grace of being a, a slave versus being a son in Galatians. That's where the New Testament addresses this. Think about what it means to be a slave. Life is a duty. You're, you're obligated to do whatever your slave master tells you to do. And very likely you don't, you don't want to do anything else because you're being subjected to a life that you don't want to live. Whereas Paul says, you know, and that's the law. But Paul says you're not under the law. You're under grace. And here's what grace is. It's these parents who've covenanted with God and 
God, realize God has blessed them with these kids and they love them. They love them willingly. They love them participatorily with God in his help. They love them as best as they can unconditionally. So by the, by the time the child gets of age and understands all those things that the parents have done to sacrifice for him, when the parent says, hey, Johnny, go downstairs and get uh, get this and bring it back up. Johnny, although he is doing he's he's doing a duty for his parent that told him to do something. He has a joy on the inside. He comes upstairs like, hey, dad, here it is. He's happy to have done it. Why? Because there's a relationship there. So that's where Paul sort of fleshes that out for those of you that want to go there. All right. But I got to keep going. Here's the big picture. Why is Paul talking to us about obedience? Well, first of all, he's just talked about Jesus being humility, uh, humble to the point of being obedient, death on the cross. But in, in the grand scheme of things, Paul is concerned about the Philippians' unity in their community. All right, he wanted them to be united. Oh, by the way, because people are peering in, wanting to know if the things that you believe about your God make any difference. Is it changing your life any that you believe in Jesus and that you're following what he says? He also wants them to be in, in, in harmony so that their witness is, 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 is worth something uh, in the world. And I would say this probably selfishly, Paul just wants to see the joy of that. Paul had spent his life um, sowing into these people and into these churches, and he wanted to get a little joy out of it as well. Verse 14, uh, Paul gives us uh, basically a couple examples, not, not very many, a couple of examples of what an obedient life looks like. And so verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. NIV uses words like complaining or arguing, other words that other translations use, murmuring, bickering. Uh, the Old Testament reference for grumbling and complaining of, uh, uh, goes back to the nation of Israel when they were in the desert. Israel were only 15 days removed from being in slavery in Egypt when we learn in Exodus 16 that they got in the middle of the desert, they had no food, and they started complaining. Moaning like, oh, Lord, remember when we had leeks and we had onions and we had garlic and we had meat pots. And even though we were in slavery, at least we had food to eat. And they started complaining to Moses. Moses, you've let this God of yours bring us out a little bit of nowhere. We're hungry. and There's a million of us. Feed us. And so what does God do? God causes manna to fall down so they would have his provision every day. And he gave them quail uh, once a day so they would have meat. God satisfied their longing. Not too long after that, God moves them on to the wilderness of sin. That's an interesting name for God to call a place where they're actually going to sin against him. But that's what happens. And uh, once again, Israel started murmuring, bickering and complaining against God. In this case, they ran out of water. Can you imagine a million people, no water? I mean, that, they needed a miracle. But the point was, instead of just coming to God and say, Lord, we have nothing but you and you covenanted with us. We're your people. You've delivered us by your mighty hand. Would you provide us water to drink so that we won't perish? What do they do? Like, oh, my gosh, we can't. We have no we're going to perish out here. Moses, what have you done? And of course, Moses just basically said, Stop complaining to me because you're bickering against God. And then Moses went to God and said, God, why, why have you given me these hard neck, stiff neck people? I bring all that up. I wish I could have embellished a little bit more because, unfortunately, we're just like this, aren't we? Here's why Paul is saying this. We're just like this. 
We, we have secret murmurings if we don't do it out loud. We complain, and when we complain, here's Paul's thing here. He says we do it not just in the world, but we do it amongst fellow believers, and we, in a sense, destroy the unity of the church. Because he's saying you need to be not just a unified, but unified the way Jesus was unified, humble to the point of dying a death on the cross. They're, they're negating the example of Jesus. But here's the greater issue. This is a gospel issue. When we complain about the situations in our life, whatever they are, our kids are acting up. I'm out of money. My boss at work is a tyrant, manipulator, hater. All those things. We're ultimately bickering against the Lord and whatever his provision is for your life. You may be in a difficult situation or circumstance, but grumbling, complaining, murmuring, questioning eventually all falls back on the Lord if if you are his because he is ordaining the things that happen in your life, even sometimes difficult situations so that the things that are in us would come out and you would be forced to deal with them. So this is a gospel issue. And here's what the gospel tells us, that you are far better off than you deserve. What does Romans 6, 3 and 3 tell you that you deserve? Death. That's a good word for you kids. Your kids are complaining. They want ice cream. They're in the car. Are we there yet? It's like, pull the car over. Pull it over. And look back and say, all right, what does the Bible say? What do you deserve? (laughs) And then you make them say death. Make them say it out loud. You deserve death. Right? But, But Ephesians 2. But God, who is great in mercy and kindness. Right? He loved us in the beloved. We deserve death. God gives us otherwise. God gives us more than we can, can, more than we deserve. And so when we bicker and complain and I mean, all those things, we've lost sight of the gospel. We lose sight of the gospel. We go down that dark hole of murmuring, complaining and arguing. Ultimately, it's an argument against the Lord. And Paul is saying, hey, 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 stay focused on Jesus. Because if you if you lose sight of of Jesus, like Israel did, you lose sight of God's redemption through Jesus, and you'll complain and lose the greater exodus that can be found in Jesus' death and resulting resurrection. Verse 15, almost done. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. My eyes are trained on, on these words, light, shine as light, in the world. And Paul here, I think, is reminding us, you know, life is, I mean, none of us live perfect lives. And if we are honest, sometimes life is hard. And sometimes when life is hard, life becomes messy for you and you're living that out in a broken world. But don't forget, people are looking at you. This is Paul's thing. He's like, you're shining as lights in the world. And sometimes your light is like dim, but that doesn't negate people from looking at you. He's worried about our witness to a world that needs to needs to have more hope than it has for itself. And so people are looking at you and the judgment they're making is, does what they believe in make any difference? Does them following Jesus make them different than what I'm doing on my own? I don't know. I don't know Jesus, but I look I'm, I'm doing all right. I got it. I got as good an attitude as they got. Paul is saying, I mean, Don't miss the opportunity to show people uh, in a real world that Jesus changes us 
from the inside out. And then lastly, verse 16 through 18. Paul says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I think Paul is being selfish here. He's basically saying, you know what? I want to be proud. I want to be proud that I have done what God has called me to do. But the very thing that he's called me to do has exacted change in you, not change from the external perspective of like you just dutifully grinding it out, just doing what God has told you to do and having like no joy. But in obedience, it comes from the inside. It's like not a have to, but a get. I just I got a, lo- a God that loves me, that loved me to its death. And it's in me to worship him. It's in me to live for him. It's in me to witness for him. I love the word hold fast. That's a visual word. Paul uses that. The Bible uses that word in several places. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The writer of Hebrews tells the, the people that he's writing to, hold fast the confession of your faith without wavering. That word to me means it's like super glue. Hold fast is hold on, don't let go. Hell or high water, don't let go. And honestly, that's the way Jesus holds on to you if you're his. And he's encouraging you, hold on to the profession of your faith the same way he's holding on to you. And then he's exhorting them to rejoice. Rejoice not that life is always packaged up nicely with, you know, in a box. It's got gift wrapping on it. It's got a bow on it because life doesn't come to us like that. But regardless of your circumstance or your situation, Tap into the God who exuded joy to the point of dying on the cross. Here's a couple takeaways for you. Uh, I don't have time to explain any of these because I'm out of time. What part of salvation are you working out? Can you hear Paul asking you that? He's telling us to do this. This is our obligation to work out our salvation. These are inspired words. So what part of salvation are you working out? And what ways are you disobedient? You're trying to be obedient to the Lord and to his inspired word. If you're a Christian, today is your lucky day. This, this text is not talking about salvation from the perspective of coming to faith in Jesus. It's talking about working out the salvation in the present tense that you already have. But maybe you're here. And you have been coming to church, you're around church people, you're reading your Bible, but you don't have a personal faith in God. And I would tell you, you don't even have the impetus. You don't have the power in you to do the very things God has, is encouraging you to do. And luck is the wrong way to say it, but today is the day of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. And if, and if you don't know this Lord, then today would be a great day for you to work at your salvation by, by coming to faith in Jesus. If you're a Christian, Paul is encouraging you to ask, what do you need to work out? What has he convicted you of? A sin that's besetting you, that you need to repent and up, maybe perhaps go apologize to somebody for. Has God taught you something that you need to apply, that you've just been hesitant to do that? Has God brought someone into your life that you need to learn from? Secondly, what is Jesus working in you? Where is he working? You know, Christian, you shouldn't, I mean, you should be, I mean, this is not just nowhere. Like, in my nowhere, I know Jesus is working on my character. Yeah, he's doing that for all of us. 
Specifically, where is Jesus working on in your life? What's he teaching you? What's he convicting you of? How is he calling you to repentance? What burdens for ministry and service has he laid out in your heart? What people has he brought into your life? What are you doing with all these things? Thirdly, what murmuring, grumbling and questioning do you need to repent of? That's the hard one right there, isn't it? I just spent a lot of time here, but but you could you need a journal on this. There's some things in our lives, some ways that you are complaining, you need to just stop. There are some ways that you are grumbling that you need to just stop. Ask the Lord what he would have for you right there. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these timely words. There's never a day that we open our Bibles to any place that, God, you can't speak to us. And I pray that you would speak to us in these words from Paul where he encourages us to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Lord, help us to awe you in the awe that you deserve. And and Lord, more importantly, we pray that we would serve you not out of an obligation that comes from duty, but that you would work in us the very desire and motivation that we need to love you and to serve you with all of our hearts, not because we have to, but because we want to, and do it because of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.